so I'm going to give the Season 7 speech later, but I want to talk about it a little bit here, because one of the things that I've... How do I phrase this? Season 7 feels a lot like Voyager. Now, I've already said that, and I've already said why. But what I haven't really described is the specifics. Is if I just say, this show is like Voyager, that's going to mean a different thing to everybody. Remember, I actually enjoy Voyager. I defend Voyager. But <laughs> Voyager is a severely flawed show, especially early Voyager. Basically, early Voyager is what I would call net positive. Good acting, you know, competent presentation, and some enjoyable moments help to salvage illogical plots, nonsensical presentation, no continuity, and generally an absence of what I would consider to be good television. In short, it's not bad, and I still enjoy it, but it's pretty far on the, the low end of the spectrum. You know what I mean? Having recently gone through a huge chunk of DS9, pretty much most of uh, Season 7, because I've already finished all the DS9 stuff, as well as all of TNG up to this point, as well of all as all of as well as all of Voyager, amongst these three shows, I think I could pretty definitively point to season five of TNG, which had some really great stuff, and season six of Deep Space Nine, which had some really great stuff. I think those are probably the highlight marks. I'd have to sit and think about where Voyager sits on that, because that would probably be season five or season six on Voyager. I have to think about it, like I said. Either way, that you know, that's the pinnacle. That's like, oh, that's awesome and amazing. And then there's this. This is just kind of there. It's, you know what I mean? <laughs> the good news is, this episode has Stephen Hawking. So that's awesome. And that actually is Stephen Hawking playing himself, uh, which is awesome. He was a really cool guy by every account. And it was, you know, it's, it's a damn shame that he's not with us anymore. But... He's given us stamps on history, on culture, and, of course, on science and technology. But I point that out because some people seem to have this weird impression that the really big giants when it comes to, you know, pushing the envelope for science and theoretical physics are boring people. But by all accounts, Hawking was definitely not a boring person. In fact, uh, he came to tour the show, came to tour TNG, because he was in the area for something unrelated, and he basically said, can I please have a tour of the set? And they're like, yes, absolutely. Come on board, please. And he was looking in the bridge, and so he's punching in something into his little thing, and it comes out and it says, will you please lift me onto the captain's chair? That's kind of awesome in its own right, isn't it? And just kind of says something about the geek, the enthusiast, as I like to call it, in addition to the man. Just, just, just a little anecdote I wanted to share there, because that's actually really cool. He also apparently, jokingly in his book, mentioned that you know he, he after winning the poker chip game, he talked to Paramount about getting his winnings, but apparently they just they couldn't figure out the exchange rate. Uh, Moore and Taylor, Randy Moore and Jerry Taylor wrote this episode, and uh, it kind of shows. Because there, are, because it's Voyager. Because it's Voyager. I already said this. Because there are, there is enjoyable element to it, and the the parts that work work pretty well, and the rest of it's just kind of generic. I've noticed this trend a little bit in season six, 
and I have a feeling this is going to happen a lot in Season 7, where these ruminations are just going to kind of shrink and shrink because I just have less and less to talk about. As I've discussed at length recently, the length of a video has absolutely nothing to do with the quality, good or bad, of the work I'm discussing. It only has to do with how much I thought there was worth discussing. Um, this is something I've talked about a lot recently, and I feel like I need to repeat. You know, if you asked me why I like the color purple, I'd say because it's cool. If you ask me why do I like seltzer water, I'm going to talk for like half an hour. I like both things, but only one of them do I have anything to discuss. Make sense? Anyways, so, uh, yeah, I found myself just kind of with my eyes drifting a little bit. In fact, this is the first time in quite a while I felt compelled to bring out my Switch and just kind of do some Mega Man speedrunning while I was waiting, just get some practice in, because I was just kind of like, all right, <laughs> come on. I have to admit, this is also, I think, when the music hit peak wallpaperness. This will continue throughout the next season of TNG and into the first several seasons of Voyager. If you remember, the first time I ever brought that up was during Basics in Voyager Season 2? Into Season 2, I want to say? Or maybe that's the beginning of Season 2. Either way, Basics, right? The, the, the season ender, season beginner. That was when I first really noticed how bad it was over on Voyager, and I just sat and talked about it for a bit. And we'll actually bring it up again next week because it's even more relevant there, but I digress. So the Borg are back. How do they make the, this ship? I'm just curious. It's listed as Borg Vessel 03, the Liberator, if you want to use Hughes' term for it. How'd they make this ship? It's never described, never even begun. They never even begin to explain it. So, oh. The episode does do some stuff pretty early on that's pretty good. Um, so, first of all, we see another use of the holodeck. Uh, take, I mean, I guess it's kind of the fan fiction thing, but at the same time, you can understand the appeal, right? You take characters from certain things, in this case historical figures, throw them into something and just kind of hang out with them for a bit. That sounds hugely appealing to me. I would do that all the time. Like, okay, we're going to have... <laughs> Okay, I was about to do a joke of, like, five attractive women and me playing po strip poker, but I, I couldn't name any. <laughs> I couldn't. Okay, there's five Beverly Crushers. No. No, um, you know, imagine if you could just hang out with, like, I don't know, you like Star Trek. So imagine if you have a holodeck and you can make a recreation of, you know, Picard, Kirk, Cisco, Janeway, Archer, and Georgiou, or however you pronounce her name, and just sit around the table and just, you know... Play poker or whatever. Like, doesn't that sound appealing? Just bouncing ideas off, see how they interact with each other? I'm not even an android, and that sounds appealing to me. Anyways. So, <clears throat> the Borg are here. Yay. Very quickly, they establish several things. Again, this is the kind of thing you can only do after something has been established. The Borg have names. They say, I. They express anger. Data gets angry. Bam, 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 bam. Right, one right after another, we have several things showing that something's up, establishing the early mystery of what's going on, which won't even be a, uh, resolved in this entire episode. We also see that his first emotion is here, except it's totally not. There's actually a second emotion. I, I remember the Q episode. I forget which one it's called, because they all blur for me a little bit, but you know. So, one of the things I remember thinking of the day was, this isn't him just evolving. They did something to him. And Mum and I, Lord Mum and I agreed on this. And the reason why is because 
we're probably thinking about the continuity too much. But the reason why is over in Birthright, Data accidentally activated a part of his brain to establish the dream thing, right? Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense that Sung would develop pieces of him that would unlock at certain points of progression. Emotions are not one of those, and we know that with total certainty. Why? Because he had to have an emotional chip to insert later. Now, we know he has the overall hardware for feeling emotions, because the chip has to interact with something, right? And we know that it does, you know, spoilers for generations, it does interact properly. So the hardware for actually processing that and, and the software for analyzing it is still there. It's just the actual source of emotions isn't present. It has to be fed in externally. Which then makes the episode make a lot of sense even before you see lore. It's like, okay, so something is literally feeding emotions. Then Croesus hits a thing on his thing. It's like, okay, so the Borg are feeding him emotions. Except I hesitate to call these things the Borg. The rogues, maybe? We'll call these the rogues for now. So, <laughs> Necheyev shows up. I'm going to talk about this one for a second. I never liked Admiral Necheyev, but what I like even less about her is she just ordered a captain of the Enterprise to commit genocide at the first opportunity without questioning orders. Now, um, it doesn't work that way. J just to summarize, that's not how that works. If you decide to just abstractly order someone to commit genocide, even in a military organization, which I do believe Starfleet to be, but especially if it is not a military organization, which some people believe it to be, then that's a no. You do not do that. You, you, can't just so, you can't take something that is a ludicrously complex situation. We spent some time talking about it back in Iborg. This is a complex thing. This is a convoluted scenario. There's, there's questions of ethics, morality, pragmatism, realism, uh, the macroscopic view versus the microscopic view, tangible versus intangible. There's a lot to debate here. You don't have the right to just walk in and arbitrarily decide that for someone. That's not how that works. Again, even in a military organization. I know what you're thinking. Aren't you supposed to follow orders? Well, kind of. So first of all, there's the problem with illegal orders, which you are actually not supposed to follow. But then if an order comes through that you question, it is your job. It is literally incumbent upon you to, to counter that and to argue it and debate it to the furthest extent of your abilities. Now, if at the end of doing so you have not convinced them of, of the fact that they have changed their mind or whatever, then yes, now it is your, your job to follow orders. But you can kind of see how even in a military scenario, this just doesn't fly. And this is one of the things I don't like about Necheyev. It's not the actress who's actually quite, quite acceptable. And it's not the fact that she comes across as harsh, which I don't give a damn about. I mean, I don't like rude people. No, it's the fact that she consistently pushes the idea that don't question your superiors. Do as you're told. I know better than you. That's what irritates me. I can name three examples of that right off the top of my head. This episode, where she insists that Picard commit genocide if given the opportunity, and scolds him for not doing so. Bad Picard. Bad Picard. Again, it's not like she doesn't have a point. My problem is that she's simplifying the point. Anyways, so example number one. Example number two is over on D-Space-9 the whole Maquis situation when she was interacting with Cisco. It is our job to preserve the peace no matter what, even if they're not preserving the peace, which brings me to instance three. I believe Riker is the one who brought it up with regards to her also regarding the Cardassians. Uh, I think this was back in The Wounded. Three instances where she told someone to shut up and, and, and pay attention to do her 
to do whatever she tells them to do. Obstinate bureaucrat, bureaucrat, ladies and gentlemen. God, I am stuttering bad. I apologize. I'm just, this kind of stuff pisses me off. I've known people like this in real life. And uh, I'd like to think I'm a person who will follow orders pretty well, especially if I have trust and, and faith in the person giving those orders. Um, when someone like Necheyev gives me orders, I kind of have a bad habit, and I'll admit this, to be incredibly contrary to that person, to just challenge them at every point, because they're being a rude dick who I have no faith in, because she's not a good leader, and that's the problem. If someone like, oh, I don't know, uh, Jellico, Captain Jellico, was giving that order, okay, I'd put a lot, I'd probably go ahead and follow it. Because for all of his flaws, the man is competent. Necheyev does not have that backing her. Then again, what can you say? She's only an admiral. Anywho, <clears throat> so this then leads to the dumbest scene in the episode. Oh yeah, quick episode. Quick quick side note, really quick. Anybody else get the impression that Necheyev is fully in bed with Section 31? I've actually thought that before. Just food for thought. Anyways. <clears throat> so meanwhile, Troy sucks at her job. I don't like making fun of Troy, because mostly it's the fact that Troy, and several characters on the show really, uh, but Troy and Crusher being the two big ones, kind of got a bad rap by not really being treated properly by the writers or creative staff, and not really getting a chance to shine as they should have. So, it kind of sucks to make fun of her, but the fact of the matter is that in this episode she's kind of dumb. N emotions aren't negative data. Now, I, I suppose you could argue that. She herself calls these emotions negative in the next episode, so what the hell do I know? If I was willing to be psychoanalytical for just a second, I would say that most things that we call emotions are actually variants of a core emotion. So that there's a core emotion and they can be varied out into several different side emotions, which can then be negative or positive, right? Um... It's the idea of perversion, basically. No, not like that. I mean, perverting the intent. So, for example, love can be perverted into jealousy um, or possessiveness, for example. Um, the desire to help or aid can be perverted into feelings of being like abused or misused and bitterness and resentment, right? These are on the same emotional axis from each other. It's just circumstances and emotions can twist them into a darker, more negative version of themselves. Now, anger is a tr tricky one because anger is a whole spectrum by itself. But I'm pretty sure that the type of anger that was being demonstrated and the pleasure at killing would probably qualify on the negative side of the axis. Oh, yeah, and just because if I don't point it out, someone else would. Yes, Data literally got time off to go look at porn. Just, I mean, it, it, he's trying to evoke an emotional response. And he's failing, just like porn. Anyways, so <laughs> this then leads to a nice couple of scenes. There are good e scenes in this episode. This is what salvages this episode. There's this great bit where they're like, oh, God, they, they're reporting. and they're, 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 Wait, sir, they've called in. They've canceled the red alert. It was just a Ferengi ship. Now, they all act all upset, but this is the third one they've gotten in like an hour. And that makes perfect sense. That's actually wonderful world building. Remember, during Best of Both Worlds, 
only the upper echelons and those who were in the know in Starfleet really knew who or what the Borg were, right? So when the Borg were found again, there wasn't a big panic. Most of the dread that we were feeling was on behalf of the crew itself because they'd personally encountered the Borg. Here we're seeing the post-Wolf 359 reality where just random outposts are freaking out because of the fact that there are Borg loose because now everyone knows who the Borg are and what they did and how close they came to cracking the Federation in half. Now, if that doesn't sound impressive, please, please take this for a moment. The Federation, which has been around for centuries, which is one of the biggest, most powerful, most influential forces in, in known space across two quadrants, it's one of the big three, was nearly smashed by one ship. I hate to overemphasize this. Actually, frankly, I don't even think I'm overemphasizing this, but I'm trying to get across the idea of what most normal people, most other people are feeling when they think of, and here, the Borg. Of course they're panicked. Of course they're freaking out. Now, this then leads to an interesting scene. Picard is upset. Riker just looks at him for a second. Picard apologizes on his own, which is why I would follow the orders of someone like Picard, by the way. And Picard then admits that he may have made a mistake in letting you go. Notice that this is a complex issue, one that should be debated and discussed. And in fact, just like in IHU, or IBOR, excuse me, I would love to hear your thoughts on it, as usual, although Hugh doesn't come until the next episode, spoilers. But the point being, it's, it's a topic, and he's de deliberating on it, and he says, the way he says it was, uh, the moral thing might not have been the right thing to do. And I actually have a different way of describing that. Right and wrong correct and incorrect is the is the terminology I tend to use very consistently. Uh, right and wrong having to do with moral, ethic, considerations, you know, consequences, etc., whatever. And correct and incorrect is when you remove morality from the equation. All you're doing is math at that point, making the correct decision from a political angle or from a national angle or as a captain of a ship, for example. You know, military tactics, that kind of a thing. Cold calculus. That's the correct, incorrect side of things. So you could argue that what he did was incorrect. Now, I would argue right back that that's stupid because all of this still presumes the dumbest thing in the world, that this stupid program would somehow destroy the Borg. <sighs> right. <laughs> hey, look, it's an M.C. Escher painting. Ah, ah, 404. Anyways. At least it's an interesting dilemma, even though it's stupid. Now, <laughs> i got to share an anecdote real quick. So, obviously, me and my friends, I've referred to them a few times. Uh, we were pretty close friends by this point, and we'd been friends for years. And we'd get together at school and talk about things, and Star Trek was one of the things we'd talk about. So, like, every week, uh, every Monday, after the latest episode would air, we'd get around and, and discuss it for a while, usually for like the whole day off and on during each of the recesses or in between classes. So this then led to us making fun of this episode constantly. It became a running gag for us all summer. Stop. Stop. Stop it. Stop. Fling. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was just so funny to us how incredibly bored he sounded the entire time. Anyways. <clears throat> so, this episode... Okay, 
if you've been watching my DS9 stuff, you know that a weird twist of Star Trek is that a lot of concepts, which are large-scale concepts, get introduced really late into shows. Like Section 31 is introduced how far into DS9? Think about that for a second. Uh, the Breen is another example here. And in this episode, they introduce the idea of transwarp conduits, which isn't a huge thing, but is something that will come up many times in the future, especially on Voyager. Last episode of Season 6 is when they finally introduced the very concept of transwarp conduits. Unfortunately, the problem with the Borg is so much of it was developed after they showed up that basically none of this makes sense, given what we know retroactively was changed based on Borg existence. For example, who the heck was Croesus before he became Borg? The way he describes it is if he was a drone and has no memory whatsoever of who he was before which isn't consistent with the way we perceive how drones work, since drones do have memories of before, since they are fully conscious and cognizant the entire time they are drones. This is not just true for Seven of Nine, but for basically every drone we encounter over on Voyager. It's a recurring problem. So, why do these people suddenly have no memory of who they were before? And there's other issues related to this. I'm not going to cover all of them. You get the idea. Now... What they've done in this, and they do a good thing, uh, you know, in very biological organisms. So this is trying to turn the Borg, or at least this group of Borg, uh, into the Daleks. Except slightly different. In fact, actually, the Daleks is a bad comparison. I think a better comparison would be the Undine. On the off chance you don't know who those are, that is Species 8472, the Undine. And, um, yeah... See, here's the problem. As I think I talked about back in Voyager, the biggest problem with the Undine is you made them a, a galactic power just of another galaxy in a different dimension and all that. And they, uh, well, they, that, that doesn't work. If you have a race that is universally violently genocidal and xenophobic against anything that is not them, you know, like, like Jongo playing Stellaris, for example, then what you have is a threat that is so huge that it needs to be dealt with, because they've already crushed one galaxy. Now, if you limit the scope of that threat, that works pretty well. And so here's, here's something I'm going to say that's going to sound really weird. I think the rogue Borg, under lore, are better Undine than the Undine. And I mean that sincerely. Oh, I like Scorpion too, don't mistake me, but... I think it was in spite of the Undine, not because of them. In fact, ironically, the rogue Borg would actually serve the same general purpose a little bit better, in my opinion. Because again, the moment you introduce a power at that scale and scope, you have a problem. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> so, <laughs> this is another thing I want to point out, though. You might think, well, lore, wow, that's going to get weird for this episode and the next one. Lore me, the person talking right now. Well, how aren't they still a threat, even though they have only one ship? Absolutely. I want you to think for a moment, if they actually had genuine strategic and tactical acumen, what these guys could accomplish. They have transwarp technology. They have a big ship, which is very difficult to destroy. They have all of the other advantages of being Borg. Okay? Well, some of the other advantages of being Borg. They don't have the adaptation or assimilation. They don't have the, you know, the, the hive mind connectiveness, and obviously they don't have uh, the, a way to replenish their numbers. What they do have is incredible durability, 
advanced technology, and the ability to basically warp in and out and destroy things without notice and then disappear. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, that these people could just show up and, and think about how they could plan their campaign, basically. Transwarp in, wipe out a colony. Transwarp out, no trace, nothing. Transwarp into a new place, completely different location, because of the speed which they can go, means they don't have to follow like a path like this through Federation space. They can go from here over to the other side, and then over here, and then over here. How do you respond to that kind of threat? The only way they could reasonably do so is to establish defensive forces everywhere. And anyone will tell you trying to defend everywhere just doesn't work, especially if you don't have the numbers for it, which the Federation absolutely does not. So they could just slowly whittle their way through the Federation and kill billions before anyone could really do anything about them. Thankfully, they do not have any tactical genius. They're being run by Lore. And if there's anything Lore can tell you about Lore, it's that he's a moron. It's the one thing we share in common, other than our names. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, then there's probably the worst part of the episode which actually kind of works well, but is still pretty bad. See, the problem is there's this bit where Cronus talks to Data and seduces him to the dark side. That's what happens. Now, the acting sells it. Cronus does a good job with his role. Brent Spiner does a good job. Spiner had talked about how he has difficulty differentiating angry Data from lore. I think he does a good job, because angry Data is basically just someone who is constantly pissed, and there's just this malice in the back of his mind at all times, and it's all that there is. Whereas Lore, Lore's got kind of that sort of used salesman thing with kind of the sort of slippery, slimy approach to how he talks. So there is a distinction between the two, and that's good. Uh, the problem is this scene is actually pretty dumb. So, first of all, there's the obvious, the fact that this guy is just allowed to sit there and talk to Data, uh, you know, without any issues. Second is the fact that he and Data somehow managed to escape with nobody even noticing until they're already off the ship in a shuttle. That sounds familiar. I feel like Crusher pulled that trick recently, too. Why is it so easy to steal shuttles on this ship? Good God. But the thing that hurts it most of all is the fact that there's a security guard in that room while they're talking. No, seriously, go back, rewatch the scene. There, There's Picard, uh, I think Troy, maybe Jordy. I don't remember if Jordy was there, but I know Data was there, and a security guard. And Cronus is there, and they're talking, and Worf is there too, because he mentions Klingons, death, death is immediate, you know, blah, blah, blah. So everyone leaves except for Data, and the security guard, who is still there, and Cronus, and... The guy's just standing there like, sir, I mean, the evil plan you guys are sharing, I, should I report this? I don't know, this might come up on my, this will look bad on my quarterly report if I report this. Maybe I should, I'm just, he, he, just, he just pulls out and starts playing Tetris on his phone, like, no, go, do whatever. I know Starfleet security is supposed to be a joke, but, What? Then it's followed up by something that's actually worse writing, technically speaking. See, what happens immediately after that is they find out that Data and the Borg are leaving on the shuttle. Now, we've seen several times that these conduits, these transwarp conduits, are very dangerous to go through. They do tons of damage to the Enterprise just from going through it, both times. So, naturally, Data and Cronus go through on a shuttle and are fine. 
a, a junk shuttle, by the way. They, we actually see the thing. It's one of the, the old, crappy, I think, Type 2s. There's a Type 1. I forget the designation. Forgive me. It's a piece of crap. The shuttle's fine. We can forgive the Borg Type 03 ship for going through and being fine, because that's a Doom ship. A shuttle? Really? Then it gets even worse, because Picard immediately says, uh, or, or I forget who said it. Is it Picard? Did I write it down? Ah, it doesn't matter. Uh, we have to consider that Data might have actually gone of his own free will. Why? We, the audience, know what's going on. We've seen it. They haven't. This is a very common writing problem. A writing flaw, really. It's when the author forgets that the characters don't know what the audience knows and therefore automatically presume it, so they kind of just sort of assume something is correct and then immediately treat it as true. It's a very common problem when it comes to Hollywood writing in general. So then they go to the planet, and the first thing they do is they evacuate almost the entire ship to, 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 down to a skeleton crew to search the planet. Why? This makes absolutely no sense at all. On any level. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, the, 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 the scanners and dampening and flargety flu. Okay, that's, that's neat. Um, you know there are things that you can do to scan without using scanning equipment, right? Uh, there's this extremely advanced technology called your eyeballs. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Lore, how are they going to deal with this? Get a shuttle, fly down, do a search pattern. You know how many people a shuttle needs? Now, I know they only have so many shuttles, but I guarantee, with the advantage of both the extra height, so they can see in all directions quite a ways, and the speed which a shuttle can manage, they could search this area a whole lot quicker than beaming down like 900 people to walk around on foot. This is ignoring the fact that the Enterprise can also do that from orbit. We've known that since Season 3. That came up in uh, Survivors or whatever it's called. You know, they can literally look down and they showed a shot of the planet. And you can see the one square of living. We can just look at the planet from space. We don't need to scan it. So, just do that. Oh, hey, there's a building there. Let's go check that out. But no, instead we got to get down to the skeleton crew because we've got to get Crusher to be in charge of the ship so she can do something. Okay, that's valid. But we also need to make sure that Picard, Troy, and Geordi are captured because for some reason putting those three on one team makes the perfect amount of sense. Oh, and some random security guy who dies. I don't even know his name because this is Star Trek and who cares, right? You can see why I'm having trouble with this episode. It's got its good points. It does. But it's kind of a brainless sort of entertainment. And to be perfectly blunt, not only am I not into that in general, but I'm especially not into that from Star Trek. I'll see you guys next time for the beginning of Season 7.